You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Charles Burns is a graphic artist and graphic novelist. He's the author of Big Baby, El Borba, Skin Deep, and Black Hole. His new trilogy began with X'd Out. His newest book is The Hive. Chris Ware is the graphic novelist and author of the Acme Novelty Library, Jimmy Corrigan, Smartest Kid on the Earth, Quimby the Mouse, and Rusty Brown. His latest book is a box set of the comics that comprise building stories. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thanks. And Chris. Thank you very much for having me us, I should say, collectively. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we spoke yesterday, and one of the things that struck me when I was thinking about your work is the color palette that you both use and the way you both use this color palette. And one thing that interested me is that you both read comics when you were growing up, and they had a very, I think, different color palette. And I'd like you to talk about how you choose cho- chose your color palette. And I think they're not dissimilar. There's a kind of a nice a light touch of uh, pastelish to both of your color palettes. I'd like you to each talk about how you developed that and how you chose it and how you use it. Uh, Charles, you're newest at this, I guess. So tell us about uh, colors in Xed Out and The Hive. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've used color for my illustrations, but I've, I've worked primarily in black and white with my comics. Um, when I was growing up, yeah, the, the mainstream American comics that I that I read were you know, just very prim- primary colors that were that were uh, you know thrown onto very cheap paper, um, and you know they were they were meant to be in color. Yeah, they were in color, and but but you know some of them were pretty pretty nasty. And uh, the color comics that I looked at that that really had an influence on me and in, or influencing uh, these two books would be the Tintin books that I grew up with, and and. That, on the other hand, was like you know, a, you know, beautifully colored, beautifully printed. Um, the uh, the original color was actually done with watercolors, done kind of a traditional technique of, of, of layering watercolors. So they're very you know subtle, subtle, subtle. I can't even talk. Subtle painterly effects that he was able to achieve. There was primarily flat color, but you could have very nice tints of color and and it. it uh, I know that he had a staff that helped him with his color, that you know, he had uh, people whose only job was to do that. It was a fairly painstaking, long process. So that's really what I admired the most. Um, occasionally, I've, I've kind of done things to achieve that effect of you know, cheaper, uh, more garish uh, colors that you would see in American comics. But, but yeah, that was, that was my influence of looking at those, those comics by Hergé's studio. Chris, tell us I, about your colors. I would have to agree uh, 100%. I think a lot of my color choices, color theory, for lack of a better word, color ideas come from Hergé. And wasn't didn't his second wife, Fanny, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she his, his second wife was a colorist, exactly. Yeah. Um, his principle of, of, of working essentially from muted colors either or tints or shades of colors and, and then working out from that into brighter and brighter primaries is a as a technique I've completely stolen in my own work and I, I, I tend to, to work what I think of as naturalistically but um, 
for the most part it's working from muted colors and then highlighting what I consider to be important narrative elements with brighter primary colors like red, blue, or yellow, and sometimes I'll even color code entire sequences of the story and cast them into the yellow or cast them into the red or cast them into the blue or color code a character's uh, clothing or thoughts a certain way and try to create a counter narrative and sort of a, a polyphonic sort of, you know, I don't want to sound too pretentious or anything, <laughs> but two different, two different uh, um, lines of, of, of thinking and, and storytelling that can kind of work together and then against each other. Frequently, the story goes in a completely different direction when I add color to it, too, so at least in a reader, readerly direction. So, if you think if you think about um, Tintin, for example, he's always got a yellow yellow shirt. Not always, but in, in many adventures, he's you know he's that primary focus. So you're you're he's got a bright yellow shirt. Um, think about bright colors that your eye is attracted to. Um, similar to what Chris was saying in in the story that I'm or the stories I'm working on. Um, I'm 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 trying to use color in a way that's not just a matter of col a colorized version of my black and white work. I'm trying to use color to, as Chris is, to to help tell a as a story element, to uh, as 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 a way of influencing where the where the story's going. Um, elements that you can't that you don't need to describe because they're there. It's a, it's a pink it's a pink bedspread. And if you see it again, you don't have to describe it as a pink bedspread. You recognize it instantly. Or if you see something that's pink and and it, and it reminds you of something you saw earlier, uh, you see like a pink a panel that's a that's a, a field of pink with some with cigarette burns on it and later you see a bedspread that's that's draped over this father's lap and it's got cigarette burns on it. and you start making those associations but you don't have to just you don't have to explain it you don't have to describe it it's there well in the history of co color in comics too i mean you mentioned the crappy color printing of of comic books that's that's sort of the tail end of comics production the earliest color comics in fact comics are were really first sold as a vehicle for color the there's a phrase, polychromatic effulgence of the <laughs> of the New York Herald. They, that's that's the actual advertising phrase they used to sell this new idea. Comics were created to capitalize on the color printing in newspapers at the turn of the century. So, um, and the colors that were used were incredibly uh, uh, subtle and and delicate. They, and the printers were very well skilled in color separation. Um, Windsor McKay, a little bit past the the origins of this. Uh, early color printing used to uh, reportedly take booze down to the printers just to you know keep him on his side and because he was demanding quite a bit of him as far as trying to get subtle tones on paper that wasn't necessarily the most favorable towards that sort of thing and they were doing things back then that were fairly difficult they required almost like mechanical work with with metals and, yeah, and using acid washes and incredible craftsmen that you yeah. know th th those are skills that just simply don't exist even if you have the technology to to yeah. re recreate that they were they were they were skilled artisans well even the earliest comic book comic strip i'm sorry character generally cited as the earliest comic strip characters the yellow kid the reason he was yellow is because they put yellow on his gown he was a street urchin um his head was shaved because of a lice infestation <laughs> um sort of a his face even some people have claimed is an early antecedent of Alfred E. Newman, the kind of, you know, gap tooth look. But um, um, so anyway, color and comics kind of go hand in hand, at least in America. So, 
Well, that's really interesting. You know, I found myself wondering, since you guys use colors as such an important element of plot and story to tell your story, do either of you either ever find that the color is leading the story, that you say, this color would go here, so now the plot's going to go here too? Uh, maybe in my own case, maybe I maybe have used color for highlighting thoughts. I tend to use a monochromatic palette when I'm dealing with something that's supposed to happen in a character's mind as a memory. I'll usually cast it into a cyan because I think of blue being feeling more like memory. Sometimes I, I use red more to indicate emotion or something that's going to happen in the future because I feel like um, when we think about things that are going to happen in the future, they're more driven by emotion than they are by recollection, obviously. Um, it doesn't really... I wouldn't say necessarily it drives the story or shifts it. it might, I might shift the color to connect something yeah. uh, between pages that I might otherwise not have planned, but uh, I don't know. Maybe Charles does, though. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm using color in some way that's you know, not necessarily explained. Uh, in X'd Out, there's the, the first time that the, the lead character is thinking about his, this girl that he's enamored with, uh, we see her in a in a photographic dark room, and we're seeing it with a red safe light. So there's but there, and there's this real intensity to this. You know, it's pure bright, bright red, and that and that whatever emotion is attached to that uh, gets gets is is found in other other sequences, but not necessarily explained. But uh, again, it relates back. To, you know, your your mind starts relating back to that the first time you saw, you know, a, a full red panel, for example. I bet you didn't think you'd be able to hear the toilet flush in here, did you? <laughs> it's all part of the ambiance. Yeah, that sort of hotel sound. There's water running down the walls. There's the tower water. pipe. Tower water right up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll slurp my coffee to add to the you, you do. You use colors. I can't use purple in my strips. I avoid purple like the plague. I use it very... It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough color to use, but I'm using it in, yeah, in a real... You're using it quite a bit. Yeah, I, yeah, in a real obvious sort of way. Now, one thing that struck me when I was reading both of your works is that um, the, for all the import of the visuals in there, and, and it's, it's really integrated well, my experience of both of your works is very akin to reading a prose book, a pure, pure text. And there's a certain kind of, I think that speaks of a sort of purity, uh, the way you manage to craft your work. It's, uh, that same kind of full-on, full-pipe connection to the mind mm -hmm. to, in a reading experience. And I'd like you to talk about um, the kind of uh, stories and uh, prose stories that, that uh, have informed your, your work, you know, um, what books you've read that, not necessarily that you'd want to illustrate, but that you thought, well, this, I like this kind of story. Charles, I mean, I, I think of, I mean, I, I always kind of hesitate to, to say, oh, this this person, this person, there's this person, um, because I, I mean, I guess, I guess I haven't analyzed it that much, or I I, I know that I, I can point to something that's visual that I've kind of stolen or appropriated mm -hmm. a lot easier than thinking I, you know, whether the, whether a narrative comes from someone telling a story. Chris has talked about you know listening to his grandmother tell stories, and it's very clear that that influenced him very profoundly uh, whether it's whether it's that whether it's watching a movie whether it's uh, reading a book whether it, so it's all narrative it's all it's all uh, you know storytelling um, 
I mean, what 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 I want to have happen is 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 for the reader to enter the story, for it to for the technique to be invisible that mm-hmm. you're that you're that you enter the story. Um, when for me the I remember way back when picking up like heavy metal magazine it had all these these European artists and and you know initially I was like very. Uh, drawn to that artwork like this person can really these are full paintings like he spent you know to a month on a page and, and you know rendering these 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 paintings uh but what happened was you were just looking at these you know the details of these paintings but that you were you weren't entering the story at all it was just it was just like this blocked this blocked image um so there's you know it was it, it wasn't doing its job um yeah some, sometimes i think you know sometimes i i i, I find myself wanting to draw something beautiful that's that's but but it's not appropriate to the story necessarily you know you want to have everything serve that story mm-hmm. um i mean i can i don't know um obviously obviously in in these stories i, I make uh, references to william burroughs that he was someone i i read way back when mm-hmm. um and when i was when i was you know in my early 20s uh his work is is to me very 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 visual um they're 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 almost they're like incredibly lucid images they're 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 for me very very intense um not everything i mean some of his cut up prose starts to you know starts to veer away from that but um but i mean i don't i don't know that i you know i don't think about the structure of his storytelling or or even you know images that he uses that come to mind i mean that that's not necessarily an influence uh, directly, um, I, I, you know that's 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 difficult for it's me. Always, yeah, it's always tough to. Always to feel think like directly. I have a, a laminated, little uh, credit card size thing I can carry in my wallet with an accurate list of all the authors that I really admire. Because your mind goes blank almost. Yeah, when, same it's here, almost yeah. like asking somebody, "What is the meaning of life?" Or what you know, if you could impart something to somebody who asked you, who, and you were about to die, what would be the most important thing you could tell them about how to live? And you, I don't know. I I have to think about it, you know. But uh, I mean, so there, there's yeah, forty two. There's right. there's <laughs> there's <laughs> artists and writers that I respond to. But I mean, I, I guess for me, my, I'm I can immediately think about visual artists and talk about them easier than I can, you know. I can say, oh, I like reading Paul Bowles, but I don't know how how does that how does that affect my you know, or I can think about uh, Flannery O'Connor. Do I, you know, but does that? Do, oh, I don't, Flannery O'Connor. I can, you can see that DNA. Yeah, but I don't. You know, I don't even know. I can't think of how that enters. You know, how I construct a story, for example. I mean, I construct a story. You know, that that seem, that feels like it's mine when I'm working on mm. a story. I don't. I don't. I know. I don't have. I mean, I. I think I've the things that I've stolen and appropriate. I can. I can see that much more directly. I think the other stuff kind of just is absorbed into me. And and uh, and. The people I respond to are people who who just have this kind of singular, this very strong vision, and 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 you enter into it, and you're and you you can see who they are, you can feel who they are when you're reading. Right. I love Flannery O'Connor. I read a lot of her stuff when I was in art school because I felt like she was connecting with a part of the, about humanity in a way that I just was not learning about in art school. I felt like I was being taught how to be evasive and to to justify my artwork in a way that it tried to explain something that actually really wasn't good, you know, try to find a way of talking about something or defending it uh, because it just simply was bad artwork. So, um, but in my own case, uh, certainly Alice Munro is another writer who I really admire the way that she 
uh, connects little um, moments of life or little memories of life with broader strokes of, of, of words to indicate vast passages of time. I really think that has to do a, a lot with the way we remember things. Um, obviously, um, Tolstoy, probably the greatest writer who's ever lived, he focused on how he, 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 he would, uh, in his descriptions of how people communicate, not only would he obviously have what they're saying, but he could impart the rhythms of gesture to in such a way to make it clear that characters are deceiving each other almost from the first pages of his novel. He's very attuned to uh, um, human facial expression and gesture and how those are used as a way of undermining or trying to manipulate other people. It's in almost every single page of his book or how um, emotions are, are um, sometimes counter to, to an experience. And like in his battle scenes in, in War and Peace, uh, people laugh when the first shots are, are fired because that's the way we experience things. Also, Vladimir Nabokov, his writing is almost synesthetic. It's extremely visual. Um, John Updike, especially, his, his writing is, is almost in, it's similar to, to Nabokov's in its, in its uh, precision and uh, a sensitiveness, sensitivity to the, to the finer textures of life. Also extremely visual. I tend to like visual writers. I mm -hmm. mean, I think the best writers write with sense impressions and the most moving of them all being James Joyce I think it was able to create genuine sense impressions in your mind you could implant them it was almost like he was performing a mental operation you could read a page of text of Ulysses not have any idea consciously what you've just read but your brain has images suddenly in it in some way they've been implanted there just through his use of words I don't think any other writer's ever been able to do that so um, I, I guess your question is though about comics and I, I well, no, actually, it was about prose stuff like that. I, I was okay. thinking for you, uh, in particular, building stories. I, I just thought of Dickens. That's I, interesting. I just I just read David Copperfield really? recently, yeah, but I wasn't really in. Well, I wasn't thinking about it when I was working on it. So. Well, it just uh, the scope and the humanity of it, and the way I don't know, just the 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 feel hmm. of of oh, building nice. stories. I just reminded me of Dickens. I thought I could see that. I guess, I mean, I guess he's so incredibly readable and accessible, mm -hmm. and but he gets at the true texture of life, and obviously the famous thunderstorm scene and in, in David Copperfield that feels so incredibly real. It's so based on sense impression that it feels like you're right there. So right. Um, I, yeah. I, when I was younger, I, I realized the power of prose over comics because I, I, uh, you know, I'd hear these phrases like oh you can do anything in comics and I realized pretty early on that is not true there's a true advantage to prose writing where you don't when you see a character in comics you're less apt to identify with that character or feel through that character especially if you're seeing their face strangely enough if the face is turned away from the to, from the viewer it's much easier to empathize with that particular character which is something that Hokusai the Japanese artist um, realized I think later in his life he, he said it, something about like if he could do it all over again. He'd show a lot less faces. So, and there's a real power to prose there because when you're reading books, I think we even talked about this yesterday. You go blind basically. You look through the page. You cease to see. Your eyes. It's almost like going to sleep. It's like anesthetizing your vision in the same way that when you fall asleep, you can't move your body. But when you read comics, your eyes are kind of kept half open, and what you see in front of your eyes almost starts to seem like it's happening in front of your eyes. So there's this kind of almost weird magic trick going on when you're kind of half awake and half asleep so it's just maybe one of the reasons why it's not a very popular medium because it's kind of a difficult line to to strike 
it's not it works best when you do it that way now when you're just illustrating words. Mm -hmm. so, I'm sorry we're talking way too much here no 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 this is exactly what I hope to have I like having you guys talk the less I talk the better <laughs> this is the interview's not about me. okay you know uh, one thing I noticed that you guys both do in your comics although you do it very differently is to use layers um, to to tell the story and to to bring the reader in and uh, Charles we talked about how you use layers of kind of imagery and color to and kind of a repetition uh, almost like a, a song I hadn't thought about it that but you know there's elements of uh, musical composition in the way your stuff is put together and Chris your layers I think are in terms of story and character and place and color so I'd like you to maybe talk about you know and with one another about how you guys use layers and and uh, how how much of this is conscious and how much of it just comes out of the way you write well for me it's for me it's it's all conscious I mean it takes me a while to arrive at that but it's all very it's there's nothing I mean the intuitive part of it starts very very early on when I'm when I'm forming the story and I think Chris and I work at a, a we work differently in the sense that I I tend to sit and build on ideas and build on ideas, and that takes place in a in a notebook at first, just think just writing prose, writing notes, and building ideas, and and coming back to those again and again and again, and so and it slowly slowly finds it's it slowly gets organized on the page, and I think and I know that Chris sits down at a big blank page, and he, and all that construction actually happens on the page. So I mean I'm I'm making notes and and, and notations about that page and about what happens, what's going to happen on those pages, and then eventually do something more like what you do. But I think I just I think it takes me a while to kind of to build all those ideas and build those layers and build those the, you know the, the the imagery up and and figure out how to construct them, construct the entire story. Um, and, Go ahead. I guess in my own case, I've just never felt I've done anything effective. I'm trying to plan things out and scratch paper to do thumbnails. It always just seems like a waste of time to me. It always kills it. Um, there's never any life on the page. Then when I start working, or when I do start working, everything that I've done on the thumbnail of the sketch it seems uh, secondary, like I can improve on it. So, or, or like one thing that I can now just ignore so that the second I start drawing on the paper itself, that's where it actually starts to happen. So, I, don't, I can't think of I anyone who works exact. I mean, I'd love to work like that, but I, mean, I can't think of anybody that I know that works, ex, ex, you know, has a the, the kind of complexity of the pages that you create that that does it like that. It's pretty. I don't amazing. know how to, you could do it any other way. It's just to take too much time. There it is again. Here's the toilet, <laughs> y'all. Um, I mean, I, there's there's certainly things that occur. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm when I'm when I'm working on drawing, I'm, I'm constructing the page, and it's it's being built on that page. I'm seeing there's, I'm, 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 how that page looks, how how the, how it's constructed is is kind of comes up almost like a more like a a a, a, a painter where you're doing an underpainting and you're, right. and you're building up That's shapes. Similar, yeah, you're you're building up shapes, um, and it gets more and more focused. I put layers of tracing paper on, move this around, snip this person out. I mean, I'm, I'm cutting up paper, moving it around, moving a head up and down, moving the, the, the text around. So I'm, I'm doing that. But I guess I guess what I was saying, it, maybe it takes me longer. My thought process occurs on paper probably more than it does 
in your case uh, as I'm well, as I'm preparing I think story. I just I mean in my case it happens just on one piece whereas in yours maybe it happens you're constantly refining and you do that thing where you you look at it as a mirror image to make sure that it's not distorted because our brains distort faces frequently they kind of skew them in one direction or another it's a, yeah it's a, it's kind of well so much of your stories have to do with trying to capture this sort of knife edge of of transition between childhood and adulthood to me like you capture this these that awkward time of uh, what am I gonna what am I where where am I coming from how am I how am I gonna be an adult how am I gonna feel good inside my skin you know and Na- I think navigating that world and you know coming to terms with that yeah well you and I think probably when you're trying to work your way through that, you're taking copious notes and trying desperately to remember exactly those moments. I mean, you communicate that better than anybody I know. And I read your stuff, I feel just like I did when I was about <laughs> 17 years old. And that's like, I mean, we have a very youth-centric culture, but you write about it in such a... Like, I think emotionally, yeah. maybe I'm about 17, 16, 17. No, I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether... I don't know whether... You're, you're a very mature <laughs> person. I mean, that's one of the things that surprised me the most actually when it since I've gotten to know Charles is that I I um, I you know before I knew Charles work I, I would read it you know as a, as a 16 17 year old and found it very inspiring not only for its technical precision but also because it was so readable and the stories were so interesting and when I had the chance to meet him I was terrified because I thought oh no he's going to be just as scary as his work he's going to be just <laughs> as you know, imposing uh, there's there's the, been disappointed people that have met me like oh I've, I've seen that disappointed look on people's faces like like what did you expect <laughs> well I mean, no I know well, go ahead I didn't mean I, to interrupt I, well I'm just I mean you just ended up being one of the nicest people I've gotten to know in my life and you're um I think that the 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 the, the, the this awkward time of life that you seem to come back to in your work so much is reflected in the fact that you're genuinely a very, very sensitive person, and that comes comes through in your relationship with your daughters and your, and he's been, Charles has sort of served as a role model to me in a lot of ways for my for being a father. Like I think he's he's obviously proved himself a very sensitive guy in, in raising his his children, and I kind of try to model myself after him to a certain degree, and that's that's that comes through in your. In your work, you're very, you're trying to write about something that's really hard to pin down. That's almost it's like teetering on an edge of something. And that's right, the, right, right. It seems to me that some some men get get uh, end up, I think, in a kind of quantum flux between being 18 and 82. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, that's what people. <laughs> that's are, yeah, Schrodinger's <laughs> cat. You're either kind of like a, a gawky, gangly you know, out there teenager, or you're kind of like this crotchety old man going, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say in America, one of the, I mean, I think one of the, one of the, I've said for years, one of our major exports is the fountain of youth. And you can perpetuate youth in America well into your 40s or 50s if you're willing to look ridiculous. It seems, it's really, there's been no other time in history where this can, you can just continue to act like an 18-year-old idiot well into your middle age. And, uh, <laughs> it's sort of embarrassing, actually. But that's what our major uh, entertainment export seems to be. I mean, that's a... Europe loves American pop music, which I just find unfathomable. I guess it's the one, kind of their pressure release valve or something for otherwise being completely mature, responsible, ethically solid human beings as they have to have this American pop music or something. As opposed to Chris, I need to periodically step away from my drawing board and pick up my, my 
guitar and play really loud feedback and, and <laughs> use my wah-wah pedal because I can never do that when I was, you know, I can, anyway, I don't know. Yeah, I just, you know, I'm, it's, it's a little embarrassing sometimes to say, like, you know, you seem to be very into punk music, uh, you know, tell us about that. I mean, no, I'm not really into it. I mean, I talk about it. It was, I, get, I mean, well, that was, a, I mean, that was a really strong period of my life. There was just, there were so, there's so many things that were going on in my life that had, had an intensity to them. Not that I don't have, there's not, it's not like I'm negating you know, what my life is now, but, but I find myself thinking about the, like, very formative experiences where you're, where you're, for example, coming to terms with what is, you know, your sexuality, who you are, what you, you know, where you are in the, in the world. Um, Black Hole talks about, you know, it delves into that side of it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not, it's, I mean, I, th I think, you know, especially with the, the books that I'm, the book that I'm working on now, the story I'm working on now, um, originally the story, this, the, the springboard was, you know, I'm going to think about that period of my life in the late 70s when I was involved with that world of punk music. And as I started writing and as, as I started being involved in the story, I realized that that's not really what the story's about. That's the kind of the setting or the initial setting of the story. But as it evolved, I, I realized that it's about this character and him reflecting on his father's life, on, on his own mortality, uh, about his experiences with guilt. Um, I mean, a, a lot of there's again a lot of layers of things that that are that are hard to put down in black and white or, or, or hard, hard to describe. But the, the the story did take on a not a life of its own, but it expanded. It wasn't it wasn't what I entered in with. It wasn't the story. I had like maybe three or four attempts at, at you know starting the story and like this is horrible I, you know if I have to sit here and, and you know work on this then I give up but I you know I was able in, able to enter into it another way and and and, it, and, and I, I found my way into the story. Somebody's taking a shower now. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting a full on uh, uh, water effect here. I get special effects. It's okay. <laughs> Chris, I, I think one thing that you guys do uh, really well is to discuss the ineffable. I mean, mm -hmm. things that cannot be easily discussed. So I'd like you to, uh, how much of this do you know about and how much of it does it discovered? I mean, I would say it's uh, probably 98% happens as I'm writing. That's the reason I write, is to hope for those things to happen on the right. page. I, sometimes I'll think I want to write about them, but frequently if I have that in mind, it doesn't happen, or it seems very forced and extremely pretentious. It has to happen as I'm writing, and it's the only time it seems natural. It has to grow on the page. So, uh, and, I, and I do think that is, I mean, that's really the point of writing in a lot of cases, so you can't plan these things. I think we maybe mentioned it before. Uh, Chris and I have both you know, talked about having ideas or solutions to uh, you know some plot thread or some situation that, that I mean, I'll, I'll go back and realize that I'd, I'd written down a, a phrase or a sentence or some, or there, there, there's some solution, some brilliant solution that I've come up with that I wrote you know, five years ago, almost you know verbatim the same, you know, the same phrase, and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. I've just finally found the, you know, the, the right way to describe this or the right way to, you know, to, 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 you know, to work through this, this, this part of the story. Um, and you know, what Chris was talking too about like. All those things are in your head somewhere, somewhere in there. Yeah. Now, Chris, your book comes, in, you both, you know, 
publish outside of the books that we get we you know for me i like enjoy the experience of you know the book experience of finding you know the the way you're publishing these mm -hmm. uh charles is each in three parts and they all come in the in a book yes but uh black hole came out in as a as a series of comics that you, like more weekly or monthly well it was, yeah i wish it was monthly but i mean in that particular case it, it, there was there was a number of reasons for that. I mean, originally that was the, the, the plan. I mean, I'd always planned it as, as one long story, but I couldn't, because of the way I work, I couldn't sustain, you know, working in absolute total obscurity for, for you know, 10 years or whatever it took. This was a way of putting it out chapter by chapter or piece by piece, I should say. So, and it, you know, it, 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 at that point, there was still this kind of market for for serialized comics or, or comic series, and that's how I chose to do it at that point. Chris, your uh, building stories came out kind of all over the place mm -hmm. and in various venues. And did you always conceive of it as eventually ending up in in a, in a building, essentially? Uh, after working on it for about three years or so, I did, yeah. But, um, but uh, before that, I, I, did, I did a either a daily or a weekly strip when I was in college, starting in 1986. Uh, and until uh, about 18, uh, 1989 or so, and then from there I did weekly strips up until 2004, I think. Every single week I had to do a strip, and I, which was a very effective way to learn how to try to trust yourself or to just wing it, basically, and to see what happens. And frequently it was a disaster, but sometimes something would happen that I did not expect at all and would get pulled out of my mind, and it learned me to sort of trust my mind in a way and to realize that the brain is a pretty organized thing. So um, at the same time, doing something regularly in a published venue like that was a way of sort of building up a bunch of work without really having to force myself to. But uh, once my daughter's um, birth was imminent, I realized I had to give up on it because it was also kind of torturous. So, uh, um, But from that point on, then I, I occasionally published in various magazines, um, most pointedly being the, the New Yorker, because the art editor there, Francoise Millie, is extremely uh, friendly to cartoonists. Uh, she's married to Art Spiegelman, plus she's one of only two people in the world who can actually edit comics. Um, <laughs> also did work for the New York Times and, and other places. There was a time there where it seemed like a lot of magazines were really kind of, uh, I wouldn't say eager, but willing to publish uh, serious comics fiction. I, that seems maybe not to be the case as much anymore, but uh, it was a nice few years, I suppose. So, and that's where a lot of it appeared. But uh, there's more in this book now that I've never published anywhere else than in any book I've ever printed. I think there's at least like 50 pages or so. Oh, wow. Oh, that's nice if, to if know. You're, if you're thinking about formats, uh, uh, the very first issue of Acme Novelty Library was in the kind of traditional comic pamphlet form and, and and just the fact that issue number two was a totally different size this huge oversized thing just I, there, there was something about making that or having the kind of uh i don't know the the ability to make that decision and 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 i mean I, my sense is like okay there's this here's you do a comic series and you, and you do these pages and it fits into that format and that that seemed fine but there's something about i mean chris was one of the first persons that i could think of that just said, I want to do a big book. I want to do this. I want to try this. I want to. I want to do a strip that's you know in, in this magazine and this another, you know, basically you know was was letting the story 
have, have, a, have a life of its own in, in the format that seemed necessary for it. I don't know if I'm describing that well, but the fact that you've got these kind of, these beautiful int intimate little panels, I love the, you know, in, in building stories, I love the, you know, like this, this kind of piece of, you know, folding out piece of paper that, that doesn't have a binding, in it, but it's, and you can flip it over and you can, and it's, you, you don't necessarily know that you have to start here, but, but it makes absolute sense. When you're when you're reading it, it just is this beautiful self-contained thing. Oh, I mean, if you if, if you if you'd only if you'd only done that, that would have been you know that would have been enough. But there's like you were talking about layers. There's so many you know so many books, formats, pieces of paper, uh, you know, beautiful beautiful things that and they all they all bounce off of each other. They all reflect. We're getting the we're getting the. She's trying to say somebody's taking a shower. Somewhere. Yeah, we're, getting, we're getting the word here. Right. Uh, they probably want to come out of the shower and change it. Yeah, right. we need to, we need, we're, right. we're, we're occupying the, uh, yeah. the dressing room here. Well, that's, that's very kind of you to say, Charles. I appreciate it. No, I mean it's really. I mean it's nobody. Nobody's done that. Nobody. I mean it's. Well, no, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. I mean there. Yes, there. There's things you can point to, but I mean. Well, that's you inspired were, you, by what our friends was. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that was one of the things that 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 that. The first time I saw Raw magazine, it was a big, oversized magazine, and there were there were little pamphlets sta stapled yeah. into it or tipped into it, and that's what sold me. I mean, I was I I had I, I thought like this is what I've always thought that comics could be. I love the you know really using that oversized you know looking at the artwork, beautifully printed, and and then the fact that you could within that have these you know crazy little pamphlets that were you know there it was there was something there was something very inventive and fun and, and it didn't fit into that realm of here's an underground comic or here's a mainstream comic it was it was it was something else i mean i really think it comes down to what's become a uh, pointed uh not necessarily argument but tension at the moment which is between ebooks and real books which is to me that ebooks are, are essentially a window through which you look at something but a book is still something you can hold it's a finite Thing that has an edge to it. It's uh, um, John Updike has, has, it wrote an incredibly eloquent defense of the physical book. I think for the I want to say it's the BEA. It might be the ABA. I think it was 2006. It's a 20-minute speech which perfectly sums up the reason why writers use a a a, 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 a certain format to contain uncertain thoughts. It's really a beautiful, beautiful speech. But uh, and I think there's still a role for for physical objects as a way of, of communicating stories so uh, it's well it's absolutely true I mean there's always this idea that uh, movies are going to outmode plays and and you yeah, know no, TV's going to outmode movies and, and everything's going to make radio go away but that's just not true I mean it all just the, the tactile feeling of books can never ever be replaced it's well, just like being in the room with somebody it's better I think in some ways for books to have these e-books out now because it just simply makes People pay attention more to what books can do. So, I think we we, we really we, go, we so. really have to go. Sorry. I've been speaking with Chris <laughs> Lair, <laughs> and go. Charles Burns. They gotta go. Thank you for joining me, right. gentlemen. Sure. Thank you very much yeah. for having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.